So when I was a little kid uh, growing up in Chicago, near Chicago, I was playing with a kid's kite and I broke it. And he went off on me. He said, you're gonna pay for a new kite or I'm gonna beat you up the next time I see you. And I have to tell you that I, I lived in uh, dread for several months that I would run into that kid going and coming from school, right? That was, uh, that was traumatic for an eight-year-old boy. Another time, a kid named Robert Chaplinsky and I got into a fight and he pinned me down and said he was going to hold me there all night and let the bugs eat me. And I just remember him saying that. And uh, I said, well, you gotta let me up because I'm gonna be late for my 21st birthday party if you don't. Uh, <laughs> that, that wasn't quite that bad. And then as a freshman in high school, we were jostling in the lockers. You know, I went to a big public high school and we're kind of doing this and my, the lockers seemed to be about this wide in those high schools, you know. The next thing you know, some kid that was always down in shop, you ever notice those guys that were in the shop? Like auto mechanics, you know, that's what they had. They, I don't think they ever went to like a regular class. They were just always down there and doing woodworking and we used to call them hoods. Uh, it was a short for hoodlum, you know. And this kid hauled off and slugged me right in the side of the face. And I went home with a big welt on the side of my face. My dad said, what happened to you? I said, well, the kid hit me. He said, did you fight back? I said, no, he got mad at me. Yeah, I can't, after I, thinking about this, I, I had a really traumatic childhood. This is terrible, all this stuff. And, and you're out there as a young parent, you're going, oh, that's never gonna happen to my kid. Get, get real, okay? Your kid's gonna have some kind of a scuffle especially if they're boys, at some point in their lives. I'm glad I've outgrown that. Now I'm uh, you know, way more self-confident, maybe, uh, about my life. What's the point? We remember vividly episodes when we were taunted or threatened or intimidated or bullied. I bet you can remember some of those in your own life. See, people do that to one another, especially kids. But when people get older, they continue to do that, and sometimes nations do that to one another, okay? Nations intimidate and bully one another, and the Babylonian Empire were some of the biggest bullies that existed in world history. Around 600 BC, and, uh, and for uh, several decades, they dominated nations, they destroyed nations, they mocked nations, and in 586, they destroyed Jerusalem, and demolished the temple and basically took over the whole Judean empire and deported a whole bunch of people back to Babylon. This is what it says in verse 10 of chapter one about the Babylonians. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress where they pile up earth and take it. They just did what they wanted. Now we're in the book of Habakkuk. This is the third of four weeks in this particular book but what we do now in verses six through 20 of chapter two, the tables get turned. And now Habakkuk begins to realize that all of his confounding questions, all of the unanswered prayers of, of the first chapter, why evil dominates the world, why you don't answer our prayers, why don't you do something, God? He begins now to see that God did have an answer that the Babylonian empire itself was going to be destroyed in due time by God. In fact, the taunts turn against Babylon itself. Look at verse six of chapter two of Habakkuk. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? All these referring to the nations that they just gobbled up. With scoffing and riddles for him, 
And then there's a series of five woes that are given to us here about what's going to happen to the kingdom of Babylon when it's finally destroyed. Now, what Habakkuk is being shown here, it's vital for all of us to remember that, that as I look at the world, it looks completely out of control. I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on, if you look at the world, you're gonna say, it's kind of a mess, right? Nobody seems to have lots of answers for all this. But if God is sovereign, the world is not out of control. In fact, I love that hymn, Is My Father's World, there's a line in there that says, though the wrong seems, you know how it goes? Remember hymns, anybody remember hymns? <laughs> though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Do you believe that? Are you living in dread that the world is out of control and that there's nobody to help, all right? Habakkuk began realizing that God had an answer to the chaos in the world. Let me tell you why that's, why that's important. Modern people look at Judgment Day and ridicule it. You know, the idea of, oh, we're gonna stand before God and all, you know, that seems, uh, it's okay for Hitler, it's okay for uh, a, a, you know, a serial killer, and it's okay for people of the other political party you know, to stand before the judgment seat. But me, I'm offended by that. There's no way that's ever gonna happen to me. The point is, everybody stands before the judgment seat. And everything wrong that's ever happened in the world, you know, all the injustice, the abuse, the violence, the pride, the self-glory, the religious indifference, spiritual indifference, it's all gonna be fully exposed one day. Everything that anybody has ever done will be exposed. And that's why if you've ever been abused or uh, aggrieved or assaulted or abandoned, or you've been harmed as a person, uh, you've been bullied, in any way, all those perpetrators, while they may have escaped you know, human justice, everything is going to be brought to accountability. And, and that's why vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You don't have to spend all your life trying to create your own uh, you know, justice. If you really believe Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith, you're gonna say, God, I really believe that whatever it is uh, that people need to learn about the way they've lived their lives, you'll teach them that. And let me tell you that if you're a Christian, you're never under condemnation, okay? You, you, you are not under condemnation. If you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, you don't have to worry about standing before God and feeling uh, that you're going to be cast off. And that's your only hope. If you're here today, and you don't care much about Jesus and this religious thing's kind of a problem to you. I wanna tell you, standing before the Lord will be the most awful thing you've ever experienced. Unless you're covered with the righteousness of Christ, you have no hope. So these five woes that are found in verses six through 20 are now describing Habakkuk. And for our purposes, we're just gonna look at two of them that I think relate to us more particularly and bring out some application. And each of these uh, two woes, um, the third one and the fifth one, also tell us something about God. Okay, that's why this is important. So why don't you stand with me? We're gonna read the third woe, which is found in Habakkuk 2.12, okay? It says this, woe to him who builds a town with blood. Again, this is a reference to the Babylonian Empire. And founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Lord, speak to us in the brief time we have. Open our ears and our eyes and show us why this passage and the, the next one we read in a little bit are important for us. And we'll give you the glory and thanks today in Jesus' name. Amen. You can read ancient, uh, maybe you see it, you can read it, you want to stand up the whole sermon, it's up to you. You can do that if you want. Uh, ancient documents tell us that Nebuchadnezzar uh, loved building projects. Okay, this is how ancient kings established their glory and their legacy for the uh, ensuing generations. You know, building buildings that would never fail, all right? You can read that in ancient uh, Babylonian documents. They built these cities and temples. This was his legacy, but notice they built it on the back of slaves, okay, uh, who often died. And this is why it says in verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood. Okay, what does that mean? It means building it on the backs of people who have died, building your cities, and you don't care. Okay, woe to you for this. This is one of the charges against them. Um, these slaves were abused and mistreated, and the cities were founded on iniquity. There was no thought of God. There was idol worship and profanity and arrogance and pride. There's nothing um, spiritually commendable about any of this. It was a, uh, it was a disaster. Uh, if your ancestors were never enslaved, uh, I guess you don't care about slavery, even, even though it was, it's the tragic moral stain in the history of the world. People have been enslaved all over the world uh, and still are, okay, in many places. This has just been the nature of the fallenness of the world. If the idea of emancipation is foreign to you, which it, it, it is to me, I mean, I'm a Welsh, you know, my background is Welsh. I, I mean, maybe the English suppressed the wealth and Welsh in, you know, 463 AD or something. I don't have any idea, you know, when that was. I don't have any sense that I come from uh, a heritage of slavery, all right? And that's why I think we have to be real sensitive. You're a white person. Uh, try to understand Juneteenth. You know, what does that mean to an African-American person, all right? Uh, I mean, it's not in my realm of, of concern, you know, in my history, but it is to my neighbor, Michael, probably, this really, really great African-American guy. In fact, last summer, when all those uh, racial riots were occurring, I asked Michael to come over to my house. We sat in my back porch for 90 minutes, and I just asked him questions about his understanding of race and what it's like to be a black person, okay? Because I don't know. And he gave me some insights and filled me in on some things, and I, I want to talk to him about Juneteenth and just say, well, what, what is this, does this mean anything to you? Because if it means something to him, then it should mean something to me. And, we, and in this realm, we have to separate always um, the good from the destructive when it comes to questions of race. There are good things that we can talk about. There are destructive things that we need to avoid. Because this idea of slavery has been around for, for eons. But what does all this have to do with us? What do the sins of the Babylonians have to do with you and me? Well, here's the principle that I draw out of this. And you have to ask this question, in, in the, especially if you're a younger, sort of rising, you know, uh, kind of a superstar in kind of your realm, you know, whatever that is, or you want to be, you know, one day. In seeking to build your own little empire, your own life, your own legacy, you know, your own purpose, your own, uh, you know, sense of importance, who is being harmed or hurt in that process? Is someone being oppressed? Is there someone being abused? 
You build yourself up at the expense of others. Who are they? All right. Is anyone getting trampled or diminished or ignored or forgotten so that you can make your mark in the world? Okay. That's the question that I think we have to ask ourselves from this. We're not going to kill people building our kingdom, but we can kill them emotionally. We can kill them relationally. We can kill them spiritually if we're not careful. Okay, those are things that we have to analyze. Now, this can be true in government. I think there are people that serve uh, to trample others. They can be true in education, it can be true in business, it can be true in the military. Where it affects us is in things closer to home. Do you realize that in the last few years, there have been some scandals in very high-profile churches? Not over sexual immorality, although that's always right around the corner, but over uh, uh, senior, type, type, senior leaders, type A dogmatic personalities uh, that created toxic work environments. Okay? Dominant people who uh, created fear in their employees, made it like impossible to work in those places. At least there's you know, two men that I can think of that uh, were, were let go from their positions because the people under them uh, we're, we're dying on the inside. I've always marveled, some of you are from Perimeter, and I've always just marveled at Randy Pope. You know, I know Randy a little bit, and I mean, there's nobody more, he's very determined and very focused and very disciplined, but nobody's more gracious than him, right? He's just this gracious guy. You know, he'd never, he would never do that. He would never dominate people. Now, this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. And those men would say, well, I'm building the kingdom. This is about the Great Commission. This is about us going forward for God. And at the same time, or people being destroyed, or giving up ministry, walking away uh, because of toxic, toxic leadership. Those men that do that don't be, need to be within 10 miles of a church unless they've come back to repent and confess their sins. That's the only way they should be allowed in. Now, we have lots of imperfections around here. Uh, there's nobody on our team that uh, you know, has their act together, far from it. But if you ever sensed if you ever sensed and detected pastors building their own little empires here you know, for their own glory, if you ever detected that, I would run from here. I, I would leave this place so fast, I would go somewhere and never come back. Why? Because God hates arrogant leaders. Okay? And if you trample people to get what you want, you'll be dealt with. But here's the common problem. It isn't so much even in the church. It's now more on our marriages and in our families, where we can trample on people to get what we want, okay? Uh, because we're consumed by outside concerns. Men and women can both be like this, okay? You're consumed with all the outside concerns. And, and listen, there's no easy answers to this. I was talking to a couple of our doctors in my Friday morning Bible study, and they were talking about the, the challenge of having these high-pressured, high-profile jobs where people are pulling on them all the time, where the, the needs are so great how do you balance all that and try to maintain a life, okay, a domestic life at the same time? It's very, very difficult to do this. But you should feel the tension. If you don't feel tension, you've already lost. I'm not saying there's an easy answer, but you should always feel the tension between what you're called to do in your workplace and what you're called to be at home. There's just enormous tension in that, okay? Uh, my son just took, uh, was assigned a new job at the Pentagon. He's an army officer. 
That job is so overwhelming that if he's not careful, he could, he could leave his wife as a stranger. I mean, just she'd be a stranger to him, you know? And he could leave his kids as emotional orphans. He could be so consumed with, with this new task that he's been given there. And I don't think he's gonna do that, but he could very easily if he doesn't watch his heart. Uh, if you're uh, called to fulfill a job as a Christian man or a woman, you're called to these weighty responsibilities, live in the tension of it and get pulled back from being totally absorbed in your career so that you're not sacrificing your spouse and your children on the altar of your success. Uh, what good does it do for you if you lose your marriage and disenfranchise your children to accomplish something in the world? What good is that gonna do you? You'll be in the ranks of those people we call successful failures. These are people who climb a ladder and do very well climbing it, but they don't have a lot of capital this way in the relationships, in their own homes, and in their, in their lives. I think I told you at one time about um, a well-known Christian writer and pastor who died, and his widow had remarried in the meantime, and, but a magazine, some Christian magazine, wanted to speak to her about what life was like with this famous author and pastor, okay, her former, now deceased husband. And she was very whimsical and very coy and very gracious, and this is what she said, and I'll never forget it. She said, well, Aiden, referring to her former famous husband, Aiden loved Jesus, but Bill, referring now to her current husband, loves me. Is that what you want to hear? Would you be glad if your wife said, if you, if you were gone, and your wife said, well, he was a good man, but you know, he loved his career and he loved his hobbies. I never felt like he cherished me that much. Do your parents cherish each other? I mean, college students and high school, do you, do you find your parents cherishing each other? You go, you know, this is, this is important to us. You don't want to live that way, do you? Now, today's Father's Day, and this is the day we joke in the church about, uh, this is when dads get beaten down by the, by the pastors to show how bad they are as fathers, right? You know, or, you know, you got to do better. Come on, guys. I want to tell you, the Bible is full of, of disappointing stories of how fathers raise kids. I, I can name a handful of people, maybe two or three, and, and very sketchy information. Maybe Joseph, you know, G Jesus of course, if you have a perfect kid, then it's pretty easy to be a good dad, you know, if you have a perfect kid. But there, there's hardly any good dads in the Bible. Even the greatest men, David and Moses and Samuel, these guys had kids that were grave disappointments. Which means to me that parenting is not about skill and about proficiency, it's about grace. If your kids succeed way beyond your wildest dreams, you can not take so much credit for that, and if they blow it and fail, and you know, they end up you know, kind of shipwrecking their lives, you, you can't take too much blame. It doesn't exonerate you, you can do better, but we just take too much credit for their successes and too much blame for their failures. But there's one command that the Bible does give to fathers. It's the only time something is commanded of them in the New Testament. There's some other examples of how parents can be, and giving your kid a 
you know, bread, uh, you know, if he asks for it, and rather than a snake or something. It's this command, Ephesians 6, 4 and Colossians 3, 21. What does it say? Fathers, do not what? Provoke your children to anger. Provoke, antagonize, get under their skin, be unreasonable, be, be uh, highly critical, put up impossible standards, right? Oh, that's how you provoke people. You, dis- you either make them angry or you bring them to discouragement, either one or the other, based on their own temperaments. And you can do that by being overly aggressive and overly demanding and overly controlling, or you can do it, unfortunately, by being absent, by being emotionally distant, by being disinterested and preoccupied with things that are really way more important. Uh, A counselor told me that the difference between abuse and neglect is the difference between an abandoned building. If you see a building that's broken down and its windows are shattered and it's just just a shell of itself, that's what abuse does to people. Take something that maybe was new at one time and it kind of ruins it. But neglect is like a a field that just has a bunch of weeds growing up in it. (laughs) Nobody even notices it. You just drive by it. You don't even realize how bad it is. Uh, and neglect is as bad as anything else, okay? This is how we hurt the people in our lives. This is how we dominate them, even in ways that we don't even realize you know, they're for us, right? You must feel the tension. I'm not saying there's an easy solution, but if you're not feeling the tension, you've already surrendered to something. The man that helped lead me to Christ, Neil McDowell said, his son said, his son Dan said this to me. My dad, Neil, was a good man and he's out every night and he's ministering to people and went to church meetings. And he said, My dad loves everybody but me. You want your kids to say that about you? I don't think you do. Because that wouldn't be right. Now, if you notice verse 13, where the Lord says, behold, it is, not from the, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire? What he's saying here, the Lord brings about this reality that if you forget him and you're caught up in yourself and you're building you know, your legacy on the backs of other people, the Lord will destroy your works. The fire is the fire of demolishment, the fire of ruin, the fire where other nations come in and burn you down, okay? And then he says, and nations weary themselves for nothing. All this effort is going for naught if there's not a biblical and spiritual perspective on your life, on what you do. And so you have to ask yourself regularly, you know, why am I here? What's my family about? Why was I given a life? Psalm 127 is helpful. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. You hear that? Unless the Lord builds your house or your empire or your kingdom, you're going to be um, just hit, hitting your head against the wall. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It, God has to show up in, in the middle of the enterprises that you are uh, you know, involved in. Why do I have a job? Why, why do I have a spouse? Why do I have children? Why, why do I have a life? Why does it matter? Okay. Well, verse 14 gives us a hint when he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The one reality that will remain 
after everything is said and done, is the greatness of God. The glory of God is his weightiness. There's a term in 1 Samuel 4.18 where uh, this old fat guy falls off his chair, Eli, and breaks his neck and dies. And the text says he was old and heavy, right? And the word heavy is the word kabod. It's a, more of an adjective in that uh, passage, but it describes, that's what kabod, the kabod is the glory, the heaviness, the weightiness, the significance, the you know, magnificence, the majesty. Your life is meant to, to reflect that. That's why you're here, okay? Now, our life is just not here to be moral and nice and you know, be good citizens. It's something deeper than that. It's, it's meant to reflect the greatness of who God is and what you, what you think, what you do, what you say, and what you do. Across the board, to say, I am here to reflect the glory of God in all that I do. That's, that's my, my number one purpose. And you know, there are times where I, I just do church work. You know, um, Michael, you just might do, uh, you know, professor work. You just do professor work. You just kind of do stuff and professor, okay, a big deal. And Scott, you, you just work in construction. You just do construction work. And others of you do different work. You just do work, right? Financial stuff, okay? So what? Uh, when I get a glimpse of my existence and why I'm really here, then it starts energizing me. I'm here to reflect God's greatness. Now, I feel bad that I don't do that very well. But that's why I'm here. And that's why you're here. And if you're not here for that reason, I'll just say this to you. You're taking up space on the earth. It doesn't mean you should just give up. It just means you have to reorient the reason you're here. You say, well, when does this knowledge of the glory of God cover the earth? Well, in Isaiah 11:9, this passage is embedded in a, in a messianic prophecy, it's about Jesus, the lion laying down with the lamb, and remember that? The child sticks his hand in the cobra's nest and it won't bite him. And, you know, the idea of peacefulness, bringing peace to the world, it starts when people become Christians. It's supposed to happen in the life of the church. It's the gospel proclamation, but one day it will happen when everybody bows their knee to Jesus and God is glorified. It will happen one day. This is the future, and if you're not in this track, you're wasting your life. You're off somewhere that doesn't matter. And one day you're gonna say, you know what? I, I never saw this. I never saw it coming. But this is who we're called to be and what we are. It's the Messiah's reign where these things will eventually manifest themselves. And we're in the Messiah's reign, the reign of Jesus. Now, the next woe, we're just doing two of these, is the last one. It's the fifth one. Look at verse 18. Let's look at that. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, or its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. In other words, it's pretty. But it doesn't do any good. There's no breath at all. Now verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. See how it ends with something about the Lord here? Now we see the religious focus of the Babylonians, according to this word, this woe is worthless, 
without substance, lifeless. In fact, the Hebrew words are kind of a play on words. Elilim, ilimin, elilim, ilimin, you know, the worthless idols is a grotesque parody on the word Elohim. Elilim, ilimin, Elohim. Elohim is the true God. Is compared to worthless idols or sort of, Hebrew has a lot of play on words. And if you know Hebrew, which I don't, not just enough to be dangerous, uh, you kind of pick up these, these little word plays. As modern people, we look at the religious uh, habits of the Babylonians and say, what a joke, you know. How can somebody make something and then talk to it and say, this is going to help me, you know. It's like talking to a doll, unless you believe in scary movies. <laughs> Dolls talk back and then they kill you, right, you know. Uh, you say, that's crazy. This doesn't mean anything. Well, sometimes these little statues represented uh, sort of these life forces or something out there, these spirits in the world, right? And Habakkuk is saying, these are, these are worthless. They will not mean anything to you. So, I'm just glad we're done with idolatry. You know, idolatry, we don't have that. We don't have these little statues anymore. Well, you know, you know the answer. You know what I'm going to say. Idolatry in the modern world still exists. In fact, one, one writer said that the, the key, one of the key themes of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. Not just little statues. Here's idolatry. Anything that matters more to you than God. You hear that? Anything that matters more to you than God himself is an object of your idol worship. Anything that becomes central to your significance and your security, and no matter what it is, whatever that thing is, and, and normally those things are good things, right? They are things like family and children and grandchildren and your health and your vocation and your education and your money, okay? Whatever it is, whatever it is you're saying, this gives me life. And without it, I don't know if I'm going to be okay. That's your idol. And we have multiple idols. Most of us do, right? So the very rarely bad things are most often good things that become central to your existence. And so you have to ask the question, as I do, what... What's become central to my existence that's not God? What would that be? And uh, as you go through different phases of your life, different things, you know, uh, hit you. Let me, let, me just give you, let me just personalize this a little bit so you can understand how I have to think, okay, about this, all right? Uh, everyone in the world is a worshiper. Atheists worship. You say, well, they don't, they don't worship. Yes, they, they worship what's central to their lives. Whatever significance they apply to life, whatever the, secure, the force of security is, is what you bow to. Everybody worships. So what do you worship? Well, here, here's some things that I have to battle with, okay? Just to reveal a little bit of this in the time we have left. First, if you like me or admire me, I'm good, Right? I have I, a huge people-pleasing tendencies in my life, like a lot of us do. Right? If you stop liking me or admiring me, I'm not good. Does that mean 
you liking me as the center of my significance and security? It, it can be. Some of you are so committed to people-pleasing that if somebody looks at you funny, you fall apart. You just collapse, especially certain people that mean something to you because your whole life is wrapped around their approval. I understand that because I fight the same things. In fact, one pastor uh, in town, I, I meet with a lot of pastors, and one of them said, you know what? COVID has helped really deal with my people-pleasing tendencies. I said, well, you know, I can kind of figure out what he meant. And he said, yeah, well, you know, no matter what we decided as a church, there were people who didn't like it. Masks, no masks, right? All that, I think. But I'm just glad we didn't have that around here. You know, that didn't exist around here. No matter what we did, there were people who were saying, you know, you people are crazy. What's wrong with you people? You don't love us. You're trying to, you're trying to restrain us. You can't please anybody. It just knocks out your people. Are you a people pleaser? Secondly, has my pastoral ministry become the center of my significance and security? I've built up a lot of good, I've been in this church for 30 years. And I built up a lot of goodwill. There's probably uh, one person that doesn't like me, you know, over 30 years. <laughs> I, I think a lot more than that. Do I need this role to feel significant and secure? Do you need your role, whatever you're doing, whatever you're called to, your main mission? Do you, do you just need that to say, you know, yeah, now, now I'm, this is my life. This is, what make, this, is what, this is my hope. This is my significance. I stepped away from being the lead pastor five years ago. Can I step away from being needed here and still be okay? Would that, would that feel like a death to me if I wake up tomorrow and I'm no longer the pastor of this church or any church? You talk to people that are stepped away from high-powered careers. You talk about how, how difficult that is, what a challenge that is. And the more idolatrous it is, the harder it is to do. Is that my issue? I gotta wrestle with that. I've been uh, in a marriage for 47 years. Is that the source of my identity? The woman in my life has devoted herself entirely to support me and stand by me. In 47 years, we've worked together to try to figure out how to go forward. Is that my identity? She's not here. If she died, what would happen to me, right? Would I, would I live in despair and aimlessness? Would life matter anymore to me? I'm, I'm really impressed with a lot of women, especially women in our church, some, some men, mostly women, whose husbands have died, and while they grieve and while they're saddened, they've kept going. Their lives are not coextensive with their husbands in that same way. They just keep going. They keep serving. They keep loving. They keep their eyes on Jesus. Is there someone in your life that's the center of your life that if they were not here, you'd fall apart? Is there someone like that? These are the things, this is what it means to deal with idols. I have three great adult children and seven grandchildren. If the Lord decided to call one of them to himself, would I lose my mind? Debbie and I talk about this. Would we lose our minds? 
or do we just kind of go, you know, wacko? If the Lord said, I, I'm taking one of these home, what do we do then? Can I be like Abraham and say, you know, Lord, you, you take him. He's on the altar. You take him. Because I believe you can do great things. It's my life wrapped up in my children and grandchildren and their welfare. And then lastly, as young Christian crew people, I was on, we were on crew staff for some years. We had no money, you know, of course. We were, we were pretty poor. And one time, the only time, I think I mentioned this to you, one th the only time Debbie threw a shoe at me, the only time she ever threw anything with me, at me, was when we had $5 in our checking account. We weren't going to get paid for a week. And I spent $3 buying donuts for a Bible study that I lead. She was infuriated. She said, I can't even buy peanut butter. You took all our money. I'd do it again <laughs> because we like to feed guys donuts, right? Well, now I'm in a little different place after some years and you kind of try to save money and you know you get a little better. So, so now, where's my trust? I used to trust God because I didn't have any money. Now is my trust in just this little modest thing that I'm trying to build, you know? In other words, is my trust in Merrill Lynch or is it in Jesus? What do you trust? These are the realities of what it means to, to, to dress idolatry. Now, one of the ways we overcome this, and this is the last thing, is in verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. You don't want to talk about idols and the foolishness of idols. Gaze upwards and say, there, he's up there in his holy temple over the world sovereignly, right? And in contrast to these idols, his holiness stands out. His holiness is his absolute moral purity. It's very hard to talk about uh, attributes of God being more important than other attributes. And I, I'm not in a place to say that, but I would say that the one, the one attribute of God that is most recognized in the scriptures in terms of praise, in terms of devotion of these heavenly beings, is what? Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, Revelation 4. The holiness of God is, is so uh, acknowledged. His absolute moral purity and perfection. And that uh, is what gives us hope to say, you know what, I, I don't have anywhere else to turn. Idols are worthless in light of the, the vast greatness of who God is, his, his holy love and his holy justice and his holy wisdom and his holy patience, right? All these things. And what makes his love all the more amazing, as Russell talked about at the beginning of the, of the worship service, John 3, 16, the thing that makes God's love all the more amazing is to realize the holiness of God, that the world God loves does not love him back. You realize when Jesus came into the world, he came to his own, and what, is this, what does the text say? And his own received him not. And we wouldn't have done it either. We, were, we rejected him until the day, by his sovereign grace, he called me to himself and fulfilled the plan he designed in eternity 
to bring me to himself and said, I want to make you mine. But it wasn't because I was any good or because I wanted to love God. It's because he opened my eyes to see the truth. His holiness is incredible. That deserves the world being silent. We have nothing else to say but to say, God, you're awesome. Let's close our eyes for a couple minutes and just that we're a little bit over just a few minutes, a couple minutes here. I just want you to close your eyes and just take a, a, just a minute of silence and say, God, thank you for your holiness. It is so amazing in light of your love for me because I don't deserve any of this. I don't want idolatry to grip my life. I want you to be in the center of my story. Let's become silent for a few moments.